So again, just feeling into this heart. So what's important? And so I'd like to, to share with you uh, very honestly, almost feel nakedly, and most sincerely that um, I have a deep aspiration in, in my life. And that is to make peace. That on my deathbed, that I'll have no resentments, no grudges. That I've made peace with myself in this world. It's kind of a lofty aspiration but that's what I, that is truly my deep aspiration. And even if I can't complete it fully, as long as I live my life towards that, that'll be good too. Because I realize it's a very formidable task. Because intertwined with my own narcissism, my own sense of self, I have kept count. Well, probably not since the moment I was born, but when I began to have cognition and recognize that someone just pissed me off, I remember. And it's written down in a, uh, a non-erasable ink, it seems like, in a very large book consisting of volumes in very small font of everyone who has fucked me over <laughs> since as long as I can remember. The grudges run deep. I'm not proud to admit this. They run deep. Those that have hurt me one way or another, whether through their words, through the way they looked. I've had some teachers, and my mother-in-law was certainly one of them. Her name is Charmaine, and um, she had a beautiful life on many levels of um, beautiful... F um, she was the matriarch of such an incredibly loving family. She loved her children and all of her family so much. As a matter of fact, whenever we get a Chris Christmas card or any card from Charm, she had the standard ending, as well as the beautiful dear so-and-so, just love you, wish you well. It would always end with your special love, mom. This make me cry almost just thinking, your special love, mom. She really didn't have a lot of narcissism or selfing. And I watched her as she, you know, got older and died. And, um, you know, she had had some hard times in her life, too. Had been uh, betrayed. And um, a major wounding of her husband, my father-in-law. And as she came close to dying, she expressed in different occasions just wondering how he is and wishing him well. And I was just so amazed, and I could tell that she meant it so sincerely. I don't know what type of interior process that she went through in her life that she could come towards the end of her life to not hold any grudges or resentment against someone who so deeply betrayed her. I don't know. I don't know what she... 
I don't know how she got there, but it's quite amazing. So much so, like, I, I want to be like her. The ability to forgive. The ability to make peace. You know, and as I, um, I'm actually, um, as of yesterday, um, I now have Medicare. I told you about I had a Medicare card, and it became effective on December 1st, 2019. And so, um, you know, I'm getting up there a little bit. Some of you, of course, are up there a little bit more than me, and some less. But we don't know when the clock's going to stop, do we? How do we begin to make peace with our own hearts to all those perhaps that we've harbored resentment and grudges with? And I find that this practice of insight, of wisdom, of compassion, this is the, the Dharma is the practices of wisdom and you can say it's embodied in two interrelated aspects of, of insight and compassion, a unified practice. As a matter of fact, when the Buddha was dying, he left, he left two, two teachings. Be a light unto yourself and have compassion for all beings. Right there, his very last words. Speaking about the cultivation of insight, be a light into yourself and then to have compassion for all beings. That's the whole entire teaching right there as a unified practice, not separate, as a unified practice. But it starts with this great penetration of insight to look at the nature of our mind. The sense of self, the sense of I, me, and my. And there's a tendril that's wrapped around all of the stories of resentment. And this is the tendril we must unwind if we want to be free. If we want to even become free, we need to know about these tendrils that enslave us. We've been speaking about that this week, beautiful sharings of the heart of these teachings with Dan and Kim and Karen. This is from Dorothy Hunt. It's called The Tendrils of the Mind. And she says, no matter how many words arise in your mind or how many places its musings travel, no matter how many thoughts or opinions it clings to or how many attachments to how many stories, no matter how many shoots called projections or memories or how many judgments it imagines are true, there's one single tendril that is round around all the others. And this must be unwound if you want to be free. This last one to drop is the most cherished of one, the one that insists all the productions are real. The tendril that causes all of your suffering is the one that holds tightly to a thought called me. The last one to drop is the one that you cherish the most, the one that insists all the productions are real, the tendron that causes all of your suffering, the one that holds tightly is to a thought called me. This tendril. This is the noble work of the heart that we are doing. Sometimes I like to say akin to this practice, it's a, a version of, of brain and heart surgery. And as one teacher used to say, without any anesthesia, it can be ouch at times. But this making peace is the integration of our insight and our compassion. The hardened heart begins to open. The tendril begins to unwound itself. And our practice is the development of seeing through these stories 
that have enslaved us. And perhaps to understand that all beings, they want to be safe. They want to also have peace, to, to be free from danger. I love the other night Kim's story of the scorpion. Getting all dressed up in the boots. I, I, she didn't put on a hard hat, but I was imagining even a hard hat and all these types of things. And then all of a sudden see the scorpion. He's like, oh, I just want to be safe. Yeah. That's the thing. We want to be safe. Even those who don't agree with us in our, in our political affiliations, they too want to be safe. Maybe their version and idea of how to be safe might be different from ours, and we may fight each other over that, but underlying wanting to be safe. The human experience. We often forget that we are more the same than different. My wife and I had the opportunity a few years ago to travel to South Af Africa. And um, one of the places we went to is in a place outside of Johannesburg. It's called the Cradle of Humankind. And evidently, a lot of the hominoids, humanoids, we, we came from this area. And there's still uh, archaeological digs that are happening um, there, as well as an incredible World Heritage exhibit. On, on this cradle of, of civilization, the cradle of humankind. And as you walk towards this incredible exhibit, there's actually an archway that's made of the human genome. And it tells a story when we were just bacteria, and then eventually, through thousands of years and transformation, we became human beings and the evolution of human beings and the story of the genome. And... Um, it turns out, according to science, we are 99.99% the same. It's quite powerful when you go there and see that. You know, in the explanation, skin color, if you go uh, towards the sun more, live closer to the sun, your skins get darker. If you move further away, it gets lighter through these ages and years and years. And yet, how many wars have we created over the colors of our skin, of our ethnicity, our religion, or sexual, or political, or, I mean, the, so many, you know, beautiful aspects of humanity that make up the rainbow of our life, that yet we are so prejudiced and biased and separative. Yet underneath all that, 99.99% the same. Coming there kind of really uh, very humbling and also very painful experience. All the wars that have been created, the separations, the division over that point, infinite little difference. And those words begin inside here. Just as I told you, my deep aspiration. You know, I can remember when some kids beat me up when I was in the fifth grade. Have I truly forgiven them yet? I'm working on it. And there is ways to work on it. I'd like to share some today as well. And it's amazing as we sit with ourselves, at times we can just feel the sense of our hard hardened heart and it's so easy to blame everyone else or everything else from suffering and the dharma is teaching us that if we want to become free we need to take responsibility of our own suffering taking responsibility of ourselves. And it's powerful to sit with these stories that we carry within us. 
and they didn't come out of nowhere. They did not come out of nowhere. Yes, in some of the Dharma teachings, they speak about there may be some predispositional tendencies that may accompany us from past lives, if you, if that makes sense to you, that may have some inclination upon this birth. But then, of course, in this birth, we are born with this, like this piece of clay, and we get shaped and molded through our experiences in life. So whether there is predispositional tendencies or not may not be as significant as this life in what happens to us in our life. And particularly in these early years, the formation of our identity is um, very important in how we end up often seeing this world. You all here, everyone here is very lucky because at some point you have individuated and then you saw who you individuated into. And then you realize maybe I should learn some meditation to do something to work with this individuation and maybe under-individuate who it is that you individuated into and to perhaps be a more freer human being. You're lucky because there's many that have not individuated yet. They are just who they are and don't even see through a lens that this is, a this is part of a story that I carry in my head and my heart that I live the world with. So I think in many ways, thank you so much, um, we're, we're very lucky that we get to see this, and many don't. But we are molded and shaped through our experience of life. The Dharma has a, such a profound definition for all this, it's called the causes and conditions that are just vast. The complexity of the causes and conditions that right now here and uh, that, that this is happening right now, all connected with things that have happened that lead to here. And unseen, they continue on and go to there. This is why developing mindfulness, we can begin to uproot this cycle of suffering, dependent origination. My teacher had a beautiful definition for dependent origination. Dependent origination is these links that support the cycle of suffering. Earlier, we were practicing with the second foundation of mindfulness, the mindfulness of feeling tones. And in this 12-link foundation, this 12-link 12, 12 dependent origination, the feeling tones are earlier in that cycle. So that's why there's such an emphasis. If we can catch our reactions, these feelings early, and acknowledge them there, we may uproot a whole cascade of reactivity that furthers that loop of suffering. So my teacher used to say, if you know, and know is K-N-O-W, that's how it's spelled, if you know, you can break, you can break it. If you don't know, you will go around and around. This is dependent origination. If you know, you can break the cycle. If you don't know, you go around and around. So it takes a sense of seeing and knowing what's here. The role of mindfulness plays such an important role in our practice. If we don't see this, we'll go round and around. And I remember actually one of my very first, um, one of many first spiritual teachers was uh, Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone. And um, I remember this one episode where there's this guy that's kind of grouchy and kind of just had the attitude, if everyone would just be like me, the world would just be a better place. They would just be like me, just be better. And kind of a sour disposition, grumpy, and just, eh, everyone just like the world, everything just, the world, I'd just be a better place, everyone's just like me. Well, that was his last thought when he went to sleep one night, when he woke up, everyone looked like him and acted like him. And then you hear, of course, the end of the show, do, 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 like that's, oh, here we are. It's called reaping your karma. But we have a chance of changing. We have a chance of noticing something new. This is what is so exciting about these liberative 
teachings of the Dharma, what the Buddha discovered. That we can begin to see through these conditionings. As a matter of fact, sometimes the Buddha is known as the, the, the unconditioned, to see through the, to experience the unconditioned. And of course, that implies there is a condition. And that implies that these conditioned, that if we begin to see through these conditionings, see through these stories, see through these narratives, we can become more free. And to me, this is the most important teaching and the essence of the Dharma is to begin to see through the stories that have enslaved us of ignorance. And because of this ignorance of not seeing clearly gives rise to greed or craving and aversion or hatred. The old teacher used to say that the dark of a darkless, um, a moonless night is dark and uh, the forest is dark but darkest of all is unawareness, ignorance, not seeing clearly. Darkest of all is ignorance. The Dharma begins to turn on the light. To see more clearly our own minds. Margaret Wheatley, she's a practitioner, she, she writes that I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal. So that's the sense. This molded clay that begins to assume its sense of its identity. We self-seal. And we inhabit the world that we've created. And we don't notice anything else except for those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal we can notice something new. So when we succeed in moving outside of normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. In speaking with so many of you in our individual and group practice discussions, I've been hearing so much about noticing something new. You're noticing something new as you begin to see yourself more closely, more carefully. These stories that we are carrying within us that are at times are enslaving. There's a practice um, uh, sometimes suggested in the Dharma of a daily practice of remembering what's known as the five remembrances. The first is that I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape from aging. The second is I am of the nature um, to get sick. I cannot escape from illness. The third is, I am not, uh, I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape from death. The fourth is, all those that I hold near and dear to me, one day I will be separated from them. I cannot escape from separation. And the fifth is that I am the hearer of the deeds of my own karma. More or less paraphrasing it. And I love that line, like that we, that in other words, this Dharma is inviting us to take responsibility for our karma, for our actions. That in, the, in the Dhammapada, the very first couple of stanzas speaks about that, that the mind is the creator of our own heaven and our own hells through our own thoughts. It's appealing to us in this practice to begin to take responsibility for ourselves. We may say, a hundred thousand reasons of self-righteousness why everyone else is messed up. We forget to realize that it's coming from in my heart. As long as there's an activation that's showing you where we need to bring attention to. But we don't like that. We'll just blame others. 
But what would it be like to begin to take full responsibility of your activations? Yes, there's, there's times where unjust things happen and it hurts and it might need to get resolved or whatever. But what would it be like to have a 100% commitment to your own activations, that whatever is activating within you to assume 100% responsibility that this is the work that I need to investigate to work on myself if I really want to be free. It's kind of daunting to take that responsibility on. I'm realizing in my own life, I, I need to take on, if I want to have peace, I need to take on 100% possibility, responsibility for, for my suffering. And I like to blame others. We actually, my wife and I, we, we have a joke about our family. We call ourselves the blaming family. <laughs> but now we finally, finally found something. It works so well with us. We, we are now, now our dog is the, is the core reason why the toast got dark, why the car's not starting. It's because we, we say to our dog, Zoe, what, why, why, why isn't the car starting? What do you do? So we finally have found a good place. And my dog just looks at me like, you know, like, <laughs> I don't care. But it's nice to finally harvest that blame upon someone that could really give a shit, doesn't really care. <laughs> But before that, we just like, we like to blame everybody. We're the blaming family. Do you come from a blaming family? <laughs> but to begin to take that 100%, 100% responsibility that the suffering that we experience, the activations that are pissing us off is coming from in me. Even though my finger is pointing out this actually, I always remember this one finger pointing up, but there's three others that are pointing back saying, you know, you can really pay attention here, but I don't look at that. <laughs> it's so human of us to blame others. And of course, others have done very terrible things to us and to another. So I want to acknowledge that. I'm not taking that away. But how do we as individuals begin to work in our own inner responsibilities to heal our hearts? The Dharma really kind of ups the ante. Oh, baby. In the Dharma part of there's a <clears throat> verse called the simile of the saw, S-A-W. And it says, it says, even as a person has their saw and cutting off your arms and your legs, and if you harvest any ill will, you are not a student of mine. <laughs> that really ups the ante. <laughs> what? I mean, you look at me wrong and I'm going to hate you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's really amazing. It's really amazing. And there's a story of some of these Tibetan teachers that I've heard that, you know, they've been locked up in jail and, and you know, and, um, for political reasons. And, and I remember one story of one person saying, you know, the, I, you're like, how was it being in this prison all those years? He goes, the most terrible thing was realizing the karma that some of those uh, wardens and, and guards were going to be getting because they had hurt so many people including oneself. That's, that's incredible for me that, that you could think like that. There's a, there's a project I was reading about this last night. It's in, in Rwanda. In Rwanda, there was like over a million people murdered and there's this reconciliation project and, and it was a photo essay. It was actually put out in the New York Times some years ago of these people that were filmed, pictured together, and one was the murderer of this woman's family, and there was the woman. And now that murderer is, uh, helped build a house for that woman who lost her family. There was picture after picture of these oppressors and these victims, and the horrendous things that they did to them or to their family, and somehow coming together to make peace. It, it's extraordinary. 
or that image so many years ago of uh, when John Paul was uh, attempted to be assassinated. And remember that story of him going to the jail and, and apologizing to the guy, you know, like to forgiving the guy who tried to kill him. I, I don't know, just that type of gesture. Could I do that? I can't even forgive somebody that looked at me wrong. Never mind someone that tried to kill me. The extraordinary possibilities. Jen and I also, when we were in South Africa, were in uh, Cape Town and we had to take a boat ride out to Robben Island where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned for 17 of his 27 years. It was very powerful to be there. They left it untouched. It's stark, cold, barren. Got to walk by Nelson Mandela's cell and I could look out his little barred window and like that's what he saw for 17 years looking out this little window. In his, he had a blanket on a cement floor. That was his bed, not even a cushion. And the tour guide shared with us that he was a prisoner there for nine years. He lived in a room about this size with 80 other men for nine years. They had one toilet. And, you know, the, the prison closed. There was the long walk to freedom. It's so beautiful. We take a, they give us a bus ride to the jail, but unless you're handicapped or you have some type of physical thing, you have to walk back to the ferry. And that's the long walk to freedom. <laughs> it chokes me up. But that tour guard, he was like so amazing, like how he could tell his story. I lived in this room. We, we actually went to the room we lived in with, with, with 79 other men, one toilet. And the blacks were treated worst of all. Even they separated toilet privileges by ethnicity and the blacks were last. And he got imprisoned when he was 17 years old. He's just a kid. And he was just involved in some political thing, fighting for the right, for his, you know, for, for freedom. And he got imprisoned at the age of 17 and was there for nine years. And there he was so many years later, our tour guide. The possibilities of what can happen. Pratibha was telling me a story the other day that was, I guess, written in Jack Cornfield's book. I will not say it accurately, but I got the point of it. Um, a story of uh, a woman who, whose son was murdered and at the trial of the conviction, the, the man who murdered the son was convicted. And as he was... Um, going out of the courthouse, the mother said to him, I'm going to kill you. Well, some years went by and um, this, this man was, was um, furloughed. I'm not exactly sure of the whole story of it, but the, the story of it goes that she evidently made contact with him. And by this point, uh, I think that she had kind of uh, he had f kind of forgotten who she was, and she actually took him in, and she was incredibly kind to him. And time went on. And then she said, you, know, you, don't, you don't remember me. And then she shared um, who she was. And you remember when I said, I was going to kill you? He goes, yeah. He goes, well, I have killed you because you're not that person now. You're kind now. You understand the possibilities that we can make changes, that we can heal.
In the Dharma, there's a teaching called um, the Angulimala Sutta. And Angulimala means the collector of fingers. He was a murderer. And he was misguided and um, was told that he needed to collect a whole garland, a whole necklace of fingers. So he just had a few more left before he would finish his garland. And he happened to see the Buddha going by. Thought to himself, that'd be a couple of good fingers to get. <laughs> and so he decided he's going to kill the Buddha. See, even the Buddha wasn't free of some BS too. You know, that's kind of nice to know. You think you got it? Yeah, everyone's got it. Even the Buddha, he was fully enlightened. And, you know, he actually, Devadatta actually got an elephant drunk and tried to charge, have that elephant try to swast step on the Buddha. So the, you know, the Buddha had his own stuff too. <laughs> I kind of like that. I, not that I wish that it happened to him, but like even fully enlightened, people, some people didn't like him and wanted to hurt him. But he met them, each of them. He met the charging elephant as it's coming after him with loving kindness, and that elephant ended up bowing and prostrating. I love that story. <laughs> the power of love. But Angulimala, he thought, ah, this would be really grand. So I'm going to go get the Buddha. So he started walking towards him. And it was interesting because he was walking towards him and the Buddha got wind of it and um, performed kind of this magical power. And um, so what happened was is that he was walking towards him, but Angulimala began to realize that he was still the same distance away from the Buddha. He goes, this is weird. I'm walking and walking. I should be closer, but yet I'm the same distance away. So then he started to walk faster and still the same distance away. Then he decided to run and charge and I, what's going on here? He started running as fast as he could and then looked. He's still just as far away. <coughs> Eventually, he collapsed. He was exhausted, panting, <coughs> sweating. He's <coughs> panting and sweating, and then he heard <coughs> some footsteps come near him, and it was the Buddha. Sorry, I got a cough again. And uh, the Buddha walked up to him and said, what are you trying to do? And Angulimala explained, thank you. <clears throat> he explained to him that he needed to collect these two fingers. And right there and then, the Buddha gave him the teachings of the Dharma. And right there and then, Angulimala's mind and heart opened. And he tasted stream of awakening. And he said, I want to become a Buddha. I mean, I want to become a monk. And at that point, the ordination was very simple. It was two words, ehi bhikkhu, which means come monk. He was now a monk. <laughs> Wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal, but it was like ehi bhikkhu, come monk. That's how it was in the early days. And so um, in a short period of time, Angulimar Omala experienced full awakening. And because he was also very feared, people would often, when he was around and going for alms round, throw stones at him and speak badly of him, but he never reacted in any way with any type of anger. Immense patience. 
immense humility. immense kindness. And so he was able, I think people began to recognize, and he was able to meagerly get by with alms rounds, collecting food. And one day, coming from an alms round, he came across a woman that was in labor, and she was by herself out in the forest and she was yelling help can anyone hear me help and so Angulimala came up and said um, what, what's happening what's happening he goes please help me I'm, I'm about to give birth I need help please help me and Angulimala said sister I mean, I'm, a, I'm a monk now I, I don't know anything about this and she just said please help me please help me and he said, well, you know, the Buddha's close by. I'm going to go run back, and I'm going to go ask him what to do. And so he ran back, and approached the Buddha, and he said, please, Buddha, this is what's going on. And and the Buddha said just a couple things. He said, go back and tell her um, um, that you haven't hurt anyone. And so he said, thanks, thanks. And he starts running off and he starts thinking, hurt anyone? Hurt anyone? I've killed so many people. Hurt anyone? Hurt anyone? What's he talking about? And so just as he got to her, all of a sudden, this realization happened. And this is what he said to her. By the power of the truth that I have not hurt any living being since my noble birth as a monk, may you have a good and healthy birth. And he repeated this three times and and the baby comes out. <laughs> I love these stories. And she's good, and the baby's good. It's called the Angulimala Sutta, and it's very traditional in Burma and maybe in other Buddhist countries that when a woman is pregnant, uh, the monastics are invited to recite the Angulimala Sutta. I actually did it with my children. I know Karen did with with yours as well. But it's a powerful story of, like, even someone that has committed so wrong, if they become aware of it and make a sense of reconciling and entering into the noble birth purification of the heart, it's possible to be free. And a matter of fact, I I met actually a modern-day Angulimala, some years ago, actually here in Santa Cruz at the old Unity Church. And the Zen Center had sponsored um, a man named Claudius Shin Thomas to come and give a a Dharma talk. He was a Buddhist monk. And if you look at him, he's this kind of, he's this white guy in robes with a shaved head, not so tall. And, you know, went to go hear him a little bit. And what I didn't know was his story. <clears throat> and the story is that um, <clears throat> that he came from <clears throat> a long line of um, in his family people that were in the military and so he had no question in his mind that he was going to go in the military too and this was during the Vietnam War and so he enlisted and um, he trained and his job he says my job was uh, to kill people and I was a, a machine gunner and I went on many many missions in helicopters and my job was to kill people and I was taught by the US government that they weren't even really people they were just objects to be destroyed and annihilated And in those days in Vietnam War, like if there was always bets, whoever got the most kills got a bag of heroin, got a bag of whatever. And he said, I won a lot of those contests. By the end of the war, I had killed over 350 men, women, and children. He kept count. That's something. After the war, I became a drug addict. I lived outside of Pittsburgh, lived on the streets for years. Thich Nhat Hanh 
began offering meditation retreats for veterans of war, and somehow he had befriended um, a social worker, and the social worker saw something in him, that he wasn't just an animal. And so she, she begged him, please come to this retreat. And so he came with other Vietnam veterans, and he began to sit and to meditate. And, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and um, he got really into the practice. And then he um, started sitting with other groups. He met Bernie Glassman, who just recently died. Thank you, Bernie, for all you've done. Bring the light of the Dharma into the world. He started an order called the Zen Peacemakers Order. And he was so um, devoted to, to this way of practicing with Zen that he asked Bernie to ordain as a monk. And Bernie... Um, thought about this and said, I, I will ordain you, but we're going to do it in a, a very special place. And so they flew to Poland. Bernie had been doing a number of retreats, bringing together former children of Nazis and children of the Holocaust, and to do retreats together. And so at the train station at Auschwitz, they ordained Claudishin Thomas as a Buddhist monk. Claudishin Thomas said, after that ordination, I took a left, and I began to walk. He had a sense of humor. After that ordination, I took a left, and I began to walk, and I walked for one and a half years, from Auschwitz to Saigon, walking overland. And everywhere he went, to anybody that would be willing to listen to him, his dharma is to tell people what is it like to have killed over 350 men, women, and children, because he lives with that in his blood. Every day of his life, he has to live knowing what he's done, and he will tell anyone that will listen to him the horrors of war, the horrors of killing. I was so blown away when I met him. I had the opportunity to talk with him, and I, I bowed to him, and I said, you are a modern-day Angulimala, and I just bow to your, <clears throat> your practice. You're waking up. It's possible to heal. I'm telling you all these stories because it's possible to heal no matter what we have done. It is possible to heal as so we take, again, like you can see, like with uh, Claudius and Thomas, taking 100% responsibility for his actions and transforming them. Part of his dharma is he needs to tell everyone what that was like so that he can heal and to stop the horrors of war. In the Dharma, there's a very beautiful expression. It's very poetic. It's called Hiri Otapa. And um, sometimes it's translated as, translated as moral shame, moral dread, but that part's a little bit problematic to understand. But there's a poetic expression to what this means, and it's called the guardians of the world. And that's so beautiful. And what this means is that when you realize that you've done something that has caused pain to another, you own it. And you really make it your deepest intention to not try to do it again. Then you become what's known as a guardian of the world. It's so beautiful. So even no matter what we have done, and you know, um, we've done things. You can ask my kids. That's my wife. That's my dog. <laughs> but if we, you know, our commitment to learn from what we have done and to try not to repeat it again, 
we become a guardian of the world. That's how we pay it back. Because sometimes we sit with so much remorse. How do I forgive myself of what I've done to another? Well, how we forgive or how we reconcile is really understanding the learning of that lesson of when it caused pain. When I was a young kid, I remember, I'll never forget this. I was probably more curious than anything, but I, 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 had, I got this shovel. I was like about four years old, and I, and I kind of bumped a, uh, one of my friends with it to see what would happen. He started crying. Right? And, but then I remember after, like, how horrified I like, like, I, I said, I, I remember, I was like, I'm not going to do that again. I don't know why you didn't know beforehand that that would happen. <laughs> but I'm, I'm unaware. I'm a little kid. But so even no matter what we've done to another, if we can take 100% responsibility, own it. Make amends. I won't do this again. We become a guardian. That's how we pay it back. That's how we can begin to reconcile and to neutralize those we've hurt. And of course, this whole area of like neutralizing the times I've been hard on myself, these are all these stories that we have somehow believed to be true of our own deficiency and adequacy. Last year, we were teaching retreats somewhere, and, and a woman was saying to me, ever since I can remember, my mother used to say to me, I wish I never had you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine growing up in a home where you heard that? A lot, and how that would affect your your sense of yourself. You're no good. You're unworthy. You're damaged goods. And being young and not knowing anything better, you can begin to believe it. Just like the stories that perhaps you've been told that you know you're not going to amount to anything. You're not beautiful. You can't sing. You can't add, or you know whatever these stories that that we begin from our moldings that begin to take shape. That begin to be our identity. We begin to believe that this is who it is that I am, and they imprison us. It's very wonderful during that retreat with this woman. And working with her and her doing her deep practice, she shared with me that, you know, I, I, I had this insight and I could feel like she was feeling different to me, softer. A sense of kindness. I can still just see her face right now in my heart. And she said, you know, my entire adult career, I've been a midwife. I've actually helped give birth to thousands of babies. Maybe there's no coincidence why I'm doing this, and maybe I actually, maybe I am okay, <laughs> more or less. I mean, she began to discover that I wish I never had you was not true. That's the bottom line. I asked her to do a, a ritual to go out in the forest and give birth to herself. <laughs> She came back and said, I did it. This old story that I wish you never were here began to lose its substance. Yes, it will still come up again when we have amnesia. Don't you know in the practice it happens a lot? You know something, then you forget, and you're right back hitting yourself again, calling yourself a stupid dummy for meditating or whatever. But ah, then you see it. I see you, Mara. I see you. But the more we begin to see these things, we begin to see through these stories that have enslaved us. So to me, there's three very important areas in the healing of the heart. The reconciling to the times I've been hard on myself, born out of our own conditioning. Reconciling to those I've hurt, and this last group of reconciling to those that have hurt me. Not easy. I love the story of in Rwanda, beginning to heal those that have hurt me. Not easy. But if we understand that actually often it is really unawareness and misconception that is the deepest sources of causing harm. This is why he's very interesting. Norman Fisher, Zen monk, um, he wrote a Zen-inspired translation of the Book of Psalms. 
And in the traditional book of Psalms, there's a lot of strong adjectives, a lot of strong words, like the person was wicked, they were unrighteous, they were evil, they were bad. And he changed all those words to they were heedless, they were unmindful, they were not aware. And it kind of changes our whole notion of, of evil. It's unawareness, not seeing clearly. Just as perhaps when I realize the times that I've hurt someone, it's often come out of my own fear, my own woundedness, my own pain. And because of that, I wanted to protect myself. I might have had to hurt another. And, and of course, sometimes we need to protect ourselves, of course, but often coming out of this unawareness. So that too, for those that have hurt me, perhaps it's come out of their own unawareness and it doesn't excuse the actions, but perhaps it brings some understanding to those actions. And it's that understanding that can begin to set us more free. So again, this union of the practices, be a light unto yourself to see clearly into the stories that have enslaved us. And then that other teaching, compassion, a unified practice. There's a Pali word called metta citta vimuti. And it means of the liberation of the heart and mind through the practices of love. This is such a beautiful expression of the unification of both of these practices. And why is the liberation of the mind and heart come up through love? Because it breaks narcissism. It breaks egocentricity. It breaks selfishness. It breaks that sense of greed and hatred and ignorance. So we can work with these as a cultivation of, of unified practices being a light unto ourselves, taking full responsibility for our own suffering and pain, to look deeply into the places that we get activated, that we get triggered. So easy to think about the other, more difficult to own it, to feel it, to look deeper inside at its roots, at its tendrils that are interwinding it all. And to begin to see more clearly with that. So there's a lot more I was going to do, but this, I mean, sometimes you never know where you go, but I trust it. And um, we'll pause here. And maybe um, tonight for the last sit, um, I'd like to offer a, a loving kindness meditation. I was actually going to include that now, but we'll save that for later. So let's just sit for a minute and breathe in and out. So again from Dorothy Hunt, the tendrils of the mind. No matter how many words arise in your mind or how many places its musings travel, no matter how many thoughts or pains it clings to or how many attachments it has to so many stories, no matter how many shoots called projections or memories or how many judgments it imagines that are true, there is one single tendril wound around all the others, and this must be unwound if you want to be free. This last one to drop is the one you most cherish, the one that insists all the productions are real, the tendril that causes all of your suffering is the one that holds tightly to a thought called me. May we open to great compassion, seeing through these stories that have enslaved us and experiencing the heart, the essence of the Dharma of tranquility and calmness, contentment and ease, open-heartedness and clarity that understands suffering, its causes, and the path to freedom. May all beings dwell with peace.
Thank you so much.